The reading today is from Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Ashley, for leading us in prayer and uh, reading. And uh, I really appreciate the prayer for, uh, for farmers because, uh, you know, many of us uh, are maybe descendants of farmers but aren't necessarily farmers anymore. And my mother-in-law, she was a big fan of saying, you know, we wouldn't, where would we be without the farmers? And you see those, those uh, stickers on the back of cards, farmer, or cars, farmers feed cities. It's true. I'm, I'm now a, a suburbanite, urbanite kind of person, and I don't think about farmers as much as I should. So thank you for that. Um, and I saw Joran here at one point. I don't know if he's still here. I'm pretty sure I saw him. But there's a, a new Zeman. I didn't know that. Who knew that already? Is this social media again? Is this my lack of connection to the world biting me? Okay. Well, congratulations, Joran and Becky. Uh, I can't wait to meet Ezra. All right. We are... Uh, we're in a series currently uh, riffing off a, a famous book by Francis Schaeffer called How Should We Then Live? And uh, I didn't, I didn't want to completely copy him, so I called the title of the series How Shall We Then Live? As if that's a way of avoiding copyright infringement. And what we're trying to understand is this. In light of what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, where he lays out the grand doctrines of the scripture in a very cogent, cohesive, uh, and comprehensive way where he describes things like election and the sovereignty of God and um, salvation through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and uh, great things like uh, justification and sanctification and perseverance, all these grand doctrines and also the unity of the church uh, that we share with those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. After he describes all that and explains all that, he says, okay, now in light of those truths, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how should you live in the world? And we're trying to understand how we're to live in the world. And Paul, in Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 5, and also Ephesians 6, but we're going to concentrate on chapter 4 and part of chapter 5. He gives uh, actually a very comprehensive kind of Christian ethic, an answer to that question. How should we then live? And you can summarize it this way. You can say that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your trust in him for your salvation, if you are not resting on your own goodness, as though that can somehow satisfy God, but you are resting on Jesus' perfect, obedient life lived on your behalf 
and his death on the cross, suffering the penalty and paying the debt that your rebellious life requires from God, him paying that debt on your behalf, if you are resting in that, then the question is, the way you, or the answer to the question, how do we live now, is that you grow up in becoming like Jesus, your Savior. You develop his character, his, his power and his insight and his wisdom and his joy. And we saw in the last, uh, last week or two, we saw that the primary place where that happens is in community, in that body known as the church. Okay. Today we begin getting very, very practical about how this gets worked out in our everyday lives as part of the community, but also, I mean, you're not here and with these people 24-7, seven days a week. You're out in the world, part of the culture, living and doing and experiencing. How do you live and do and experience as a follower of Jesus Christ in that world? And we're going to look at that with great detail in, in the next few weeks, beginning here in verses 17 uh, through 24. Now, what Paul does is, is he gives a prescription for real change in our lives. And I want to just emphasize that with you for a moment right now. This prescription for real change. If you are a Christian, please hear this. You can change. Some of you perhaps are a little bit cynical about that. When you look at your own life, or when you look at the life of your husband or wife whom you have lived with for decades, or when you think about family members, or whatever, you, you hear in your head, people never change. You hear in your head, an old dog cannot learn new tricks. And you may have become cynical. Cyn <laughs> I thought I was on a roll. You can become cynical about the prospect that real change can happen in your life. You have wrestled with a life-dominating sin for many, many years, or you have a character flaw that you know is very real, but you want to give up and just say, look, that's just how I am, or you want to find an excuse and say, look, if you knew the, the house that I grew up in, you would, you would understand better why I am the way I am, and there's nothing I can do about it. But what you need to understand here is that when Paul opens this section, he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Another translation puts it this way. I insist on it. Now Paul would not call you to something you must do that was impossible to do. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you can do it under your own power. We're going to get to that obviously. But don't sit back and think this cannot happen. Paul is talking to an Ephesian church and he says you must change. This is an inevitable consequence of you believing those incredible things that I have just laid out for you in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Change is possible. Look, there are marriages that are teetering on the edge because people don't believe change is possible. There are parents going to bed at night 
full of despair and hopelessness because they don't believe change is possible. There are people living with debilitating physical pain and suffering and they're becoming angry about it and bitter about it and they're feeling like change in their hearts to deal with the suffering whether whether that problem goes away or not they feel like change is not possible and Paul is saying and and I am trying to emphasize here this is him insisting on it in the Lord it is possible don't you dare become cynical about the power of God in your life That's not even a point. That's just an introduction. We're going to look here in verses 7 to 19. We're going to start by looking at verses 7 to 19. Because what Paul does in these three verses, fascinatingly, is he actually gives a comprehensive psychology of unbelief. A psychology of unbelief. What he, he says, this is how the human heart and the human mind works outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to start here for two reasons, and I might get all get excited again. The first is, we're going to start here, because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need an opportunity to rejoice. We're going to spend weeks on talking about change, and we're going to uncover just how far from the biblical ideal we actually are. We're going to deal with subjects like truth and honesty. And you're going to think, I'm a pretty truthful and honest person. And hopefully by the end of the the sermon, you're going to think, I'm horrible. I'm not even close. We're going to talk about anger, righteous anger and unrighteous anger. We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about what sexual purity is. We're going to talk about communication and how we use our language. And all these weeks, we're going to be uncovering that the Bible shines this bright light into our hearts that reveals that hokey doodle things are not as clean in there as we thought they were. But before we get to that and you start getting depressed over that, you need an opportunity to rejoice. You need to see where you would be without Jesus. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Every Christian should. How would I be different if I wasn't a believer? Sit on a park bench someday or in your backyard and just contemplate the question, how would I be different if I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ? And hopefully, if you were to compare that life to who you are and the life you have currently, and I'm not talking about, you know, if I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ, I'd be dead in a ditch. I know some of us would be, actually. Like, that's a real possibility. For many of us, that's not the case. We wouldn't be dead in a ditch. And don't start saying to yourself, well, you know, maybe I wouldn't have as nice a house or as good a job or as pretty a wife or something like that. Think about who you would be, your character, And hopefully, you'll be able to say, even though you've not arrived, and even though we're going to discover how far we are still not, how, how far from the ideal we really are, you will be able to say, boy, I've still come a long way, baby. So it's an opportunity to rejoice. Second of all, it's an opportunity to remind us 
that we are actually growing out of this life. Sin is tenacious. The older you get, the more you understand that. Every time you think you've got that sucker killed, it's back. It's like when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, it was really popular, these horror movies were really popular, like Friday the 13th and Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street. Some of you are familiar with these ancient films. Um, and you had these characters like Jason and Mike Myers and Freddy Krueger, and they'd be dead at the end of the film, but they're back in the next one. Usually the closing image is of, of, of the, the dirt pile where Jason has been buried after he was dismembered and then all of a sudden at the end you see a hand come up out of the soil. He's back. That's how sin works in our lives. And we must not, not, not ever become complacent. Christianity is a fight. It is a lifelong fight. And we should be aware of that. So we need to be able to rejoice and we need to able to be realistic and fight the old nature that we're going to discover what it looks like here in verses 17 through 19. Here we go. We're going to go through verses 17 through 19. We're going to look at the condition of the old self, the cause of the condition of the old self, and then the consequences of the cause of the condition of the old self. Get it? Got it? Good. Let's go. First of all, look at verse 17. <clears throat> Paul says... Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, he's using Gentile here a little bit uniquely. He's not using it ethnically. Ethnically is, you know, Gentiles are non-Jews. He's using it as a catch-all phrase for unbelievers. These are people who do not recognize God, who do not know God, who don't want anything to do with God. And he says, don't walk in their way, in the futility, he says, of their minds. And he's arguing that unbelief is ultimately futile. What an interesting word to choose. Unbelief, he says, excuse me, is ultimately futile. Well, what does he mean by that? It's a very bold statement, isn't it? To argue that if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, life is futile. That's what he's saying. The King James Version uses the word vanity, which is often how people remember Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The point is, is that Paul is arguing that life outside of Jesus Christ is pointless, it's meaningless, it's futile, it's empty. That's what life without Christ is like. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the myth of Sisyphus from Greek mythology. Sisyphus was a, a person who... Uh, he thwarted uh, death twice. So, you know, Hades came to get him because his life was over, and he fooled Hades once, and then uh, he was supposed to die again, but he, he argued that he shouldn't die, and it was unfair. Anyhow, finally the Greeks got a hold of him. Death got a hold of him. Death comes for everybody eventually, and his punishment was that he had to roll a heavy boulder up a hill for eternity, and just as he got it to the top, it would become too heavy for him, and it would roll back down. And he'd have to trudge down the hill, get behind the boulder, and push it up the hill. And he had to do that for eternity. And it's a picture of the futility of the endeavors that human beings undertake for life. Life is ultimately going nowhere. 
That's what the myth of Sisyphus says. And Paul is arguing that outside of Jesus Christ, that is exactly the case. Life is going nowhere, and it, is ultimate, it adds up ultimately to nothing. Now, he says futility of their minds. And you might want to go to the idea of sort of intellectual, uh, cognitively, like saying, you know, all our intellectual pers- pursuits are, are uh, ultimately meaningless, and that, that that's what Paul's talking, talking about. But in the Bible, mind, heart, they're often very closely connected. And the idea is the, the heart of your will, your desires. So what Paul is saying is that outside of Christ, the, desi- the pursuits that human beings undergo, the things they're after, that they desire and are trying to get, those are futile. The pursuit of unbelief is futile, is pointless, is empty, is vacuous, is vapor is another way you can describe it, as though it's, it's here and then gone. What a claim. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you're hearing that, I could totally understand that you'd be like, that's offensive. That's very offensive. But let me ask you this question. What are you living for? Because you see, every human being needs an organizing principle for life. We are what the philosophers called telic creatures. Those of you who are into cool big words and funky words, telic, T-E-L-I-C. It means goal. It means end. We are human beings that, that need meaning and purpose in life to reach a goal. We need an organizing principle that sort of drives who we are. It's like saying in a very simple language, you need a reason to get up in the morning. What's your reason ultimately to get up in the morning? Now, I've introduced you to this term expressive individualism in the last few weeks, and you're going to hear more about it as the fall goes on. But what is expressive individualism? Trevin Wax, he's a professor at uh, Wheaton College in the United States. He gives a great definition of expressive individualism. The goal, I should say, what is the goal of expressive individualism? He puts it this way. It is to find one's deepest self and express that to the world while disregarding input from family, friends, political affiliation, previous generations, or religious authority. In other words, the goal of expressive individualism, which is the primary worldview that people are ascribing to in our culture, whether they can articulate it or not, is basically this. You do you. I wish Jessica was in here, my wife, because she uses that phrase sometimes. And I was really looking forward to uncorking that sucker on her. Uh, you do you. You figure it out. You, you look deep inside you. You figure out what it is you want. And you go get it. And you make sure the world sees who you are based upon you fulfilling those personal desires. You see? See, in our modern world, the goal is personal fulfillment. That is the highest good. And the way you experience personal fulfillment is by looking deep within yourself and finding out what it is you really, really want, and then you go get it. And Paul says that that's futile, ultimately empty, 
ultimately meaningless. Why? Stick around till the end. We'll get back to that. Put a pin there because we're going to move on. There's a reason why we're going to do that. Hopefully it'll make sense when we get there. Second point is this. The cause of the condition of the old self. So the old self, futile in their mind, meaningless, pointless, desires, pursuits, have no ultimate purpose behind them. What's the cause of that condition? Why is that what happens to us when we live life outside of Jesus Christ? And Paul explains that in verse 18. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Now, ignorance here means separated from God, right? Um, It means cut off from the life that God offers. It's the same thing Paul says just back in in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, uh, he puts it this way, he says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. He's just saying the same thing a bit of in a different way here. And he says the cause is that they are darkened in their understanding because of the hardness of their hearts. And we're going to unpack those two phrases. First of all, he's not saying that unbelievers are dumb, that they're not as smart as Christians. That's not what he means when he talks about the darkening the dark, darkened in their understanding. He's not saying that they're less in, intellectual. He uses this word darkened. Think about it. Dark. When you're in the dark, what's the problem when you're in the dark? When you're in the dark, you can't see, right? You can't see as clearly as you can when you're in the light. And what Paul is saying is that reality is actually like an iceberg. You know, an iceberg, it's got 10% that you can see with your eyes above the surface, and then 90% of it is sitting under the water and you can't see it with your eyes. Paul is arguing that that's actually how reality is. That there is the portion that we can see with our eyes and we can understand and perceive with our our physical eyes and with our, our worldly intellectual abilities. But then there is a reality that is only available to you by the eyes of faith. That you cannot have access to without the eyes of faith. That is, without being connected to God through Jesus Christ. And you know that has an effect on you. These ships, when, they, when they're maneuvering around icebergs, if you watch them, they, they stay so far away from these icebergs. And you think, well, why are they so worried about getting... Well, they're, they're so far from that iceberg. Well, that's because there's so much iceberg under the water. It affects how they behave. And when you are in Christ, there are, there are effects to how you live and how you understand reality. So, for example, let me just give you a few pain and suffering. This is something that all people experience. How do you deal with pain and suffering? A follower of Jesus Christ, someone who is in Christ, is able to deal with their pain and suffering because they understand that it is not ultimately pointless. That it is not ultimately random and because of chaos and it just sucks to be them. No, there's something there that God will use to do something good in their lives and it gives them hope. We all face death. Believer, unbeliever, but a Christian can say, I will not fear death because I know of a resurrection of my Savior and I know a promised resurrection for me so that when I die, all that death can do to me is actually make me more alive. Well, what about 
guilt and regret. It begins to lift when you're a believer. You still struggle with it. I, I, I mean, we all still struggle with it. You have guilt, and the older you get, the more regrets you have because you look back on your life and you say, I was going to do it different. I was going to do it different. And then I didn't do it different. But it begins to lift because you have the cross that you can look at. You've heard me say this before. It's not my phrase. It comes from a brilliant theologian, which I am not. For everyone, look at your sin. Take ten looks at your Savior. And when you do that, the guilt and the regret, it begins to lift because there's forgiveness available. And every day you can wake up with meaning. And so there is a peace that you live with because a sovereign God is, is superintending over your life and you know that your existence is to glorify Him. And as you go about your daily life, even though some of you think that what you do is pretty mundane and pretty meaningless on a grand scale and you wonder how it all fits in there's a kernel like you're just like everybody else i mean there's it's only the the either hyper narcissistic or the people who have reached the 0.0001% of world society who can say what i do every day has an effect on the world the rest of us are just wondering you know does anybody notice what i do and if i didn't do it couldn't somebody else just do it quite as easily and probably the truth is yes but there's this kernel deep inside you that says, wait a minute, when I stay up late with my kid that has a fever and I hold them and I love them, I am doing cosmically meaningful things. When I see my elderly neighbor struggling to get their groceries out of the, out of the, uh, out of the back of their car and I walk over and I take a few bags up into their house and it costs me next to nothing and it takes 30 seconds of my time, there is pause cosmic significance to that. There is not an idle moment in your life when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is how it affects you, you see? It's not that Christians are smarter than non-Christians. Very often they're not, actually. But they are illumined. Psalm 119, verse 18, it says, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. You need him to open your eyes to see the wonderful things in his law. Here's a perfect illustration of this. I got this from Tim Keller. He talks about two guys, William Wilberforce and William Pitt. William Pitt was a brilliant politician and genius. They, lived, they were friends. They lived in the uh, early part of the 1800s together. William Pitt actually became prime minister. William Wilberforce, who I'll tell you more about in a moment, was an, an MP. Anyhow, William Wilberforce was a Christian William Pitt was not. William Pitt was brilliant. William Wilberforce, not so much. Average guy. Wilberforce finally got him to come to church. They leave church. And Wilberforce says, that was an incredible sermon. And William Pitt, who was like highly educated and absolutely brilliant, his response was, I didn't have a clue what that guy was talking about. So it's not about being smarter. It's about having your eyes open. So the story continues. In 18, well, he campaigned for two decades, but finally, by 1833, William Wilberforce had convinced the British Empire that they needed to abolish slavery. He campaigned tirelessly for it. It was a huge victory because he had to convince the entire, the entire empire, which was built and had its wealth, come from the slave trade, that it was wrong. Now, historians will tell you 
The question that needs to be answered is, how in the world did William Wilberforce ever discover that? Because when you look through civil, the history of civilization, civilization, it was absolutely standard operating procedure that if you were a stronger nation and that was a weaker nation, you would slave that nation in order to strengthen your nation. And that happened across cultures and throughout history. Everybody did it. Even the oh-so-enlightened Greeks of Plato and Aristotle believed very much that, that slavery in some form was always legitimate and right. And along comes this guy and says, no, 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 it's not. Well, where did that come from? The answer is the Bible. It's the only place that anybody could figure that out from. Now, William Pitt did not campaign against slavery. William Wilberforce did. Why? Because his eyes had been illumined by Scripture. That's the darkening thing. But the darkening comes from somewhere. Where does it come from? And Paul says, it's due to the hardness of heart, due to their hardness of heart. Now, heart, again, center of the will, right? The core of who you are and what you desire. And Paul calls it hard, like a stone, like a rock. It's impenetrable. The hardness of their hearts, the impenetrableness of their hearts. Now, what is he talking about? Probably the best way to il illustrate this is to talk about little kids. They're all in grace kids now, so we can talk about them. You got a five-year-old who comes up to mom or dad and says at four o'clock, can I have a cookie? And mom says, no, supper's coming at five. I don't want to ruin your appetite. You need to eat. And the kid goes, oh, come on, please. And you say, no, that's the answer. But listen, we're having your favorite meal. We're having spaghetti. But the kid is beside themselves. And they say absolutely outrageous things like, I hate spaghetti. I don't care about spaghetti. Meanwhile, you know it's their favorite food and they always want spaghetti. And whenever they ask what's for supper and you say it's not spaghetti, they say, ah, I wish we were having spaghetti. But they want a cookie right now. And so they double down on their, on their desire. That's hardening of their hearts. And Paul is saying, look, Jesus comes to, to the world and he says, I love you. I love you so much that I will show you my love through how I live. I came into this world, I, I set aside my glory and my majesty as I sat beside God in, in, in the heavens in itself and I was surrounded by people, by angels, multitudes of angels who adored me and I set it all aside. I set aside my power and my glory and my majesty and I'm coming to live among you and to show you how much I love you. I am going to die on the cross for you. You are going to nail me to a piece of wood. You're going to mock me. You're going to spit on me. I am going to cry out to my father for help and I'm going to hear nothing from him because he even will abandon me in the moment of my greatest need and I will do that for you so that you can have life what Paul calls here the life of God so that you can know a joy so that you can know a peace so that you can know a freedom so that you can know a security so that you can have an identity that you are so desperate to know and have an experience and all you have to do is give your life 
to me, to trust me, to follow me. Yes, there will be sacrifice. You will have to sacrifice your expressive individualism that tells you, you do you. You'll have to give that up. You'll have to relinquish it. But once you do, you will be in a far better place. That's what I'm offering you. And the world says, get lost. This is what C.S. Lewis, what led C.S. Lewis to give that great line we are like children that would much prefer to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot even imagine what is offered us in a holiday at sea. That's the hardness. We double down. What's the consequence? Verse 19, here we go. Number three, the consequence of the cause of the condition of the old self. They have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He talks about a loss of sensitivity, you see? Callous, that's a great word. I used to work for a living um, while I was a student. I couldn't find a way out of it, so every summer I had to go to work. And I worked for a landscaper, and he did landscape construction, and all summer long I carried bricks and I pushed wheelbarrows full of gravel and concrete and stuff like that. I just, and I carried like just mountains and mountains of bricks. And at first you try to do it with gloves, but that's too hot and sweaty. So eventually you just give up and you do it barehanded and your hands get, get rubbed raw at first, but then they develop calluses. And then you're like, you got tough man hands, like some of you people that I shake your hands afterwards after church. And I go, wow, he works. She works. Well, I forget what that's like. Um, but there's a consequence to it, and the consequence is, is you feel less, obviously. You have less sensitivity. The nerves are further away from your fingertips or whatever. I don't understand the science. I just know the experience. And Paul is saying here that we, we become less shocked by sin and we become more insatiably hungry for it. Notice what he says, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy, meaning it's never enough. That's the, the heart of greed. You're insatiable for it. Now, now, Paul uses sexual impurity. That's what he's describing here. I think he's describing it not specifically as though this is the only place this is a problem, but he's using it uh, as an example, as an illustration, or as a as a primary expression of this greediness. And you've got to admit, in our culture, it seems like we are living with a continual lust for more sexual experience, more diverse sexual experience, more crazy sexual experience. How in the world does a book series like, with like Fifty Shades of Grey become a bestseller for years when it's all about women being dominated by men? What kind of culture celebrates that? What kind of culture is hungry for that? I read an article just recently on the, the sex bot industry and the billions, with a B, dollars of research going into perfecting sex robots. 
so that people are free to experiment with any form of sexuality they want. I also read an article recently that is arguing for the, the future of marriage needing to be polyamorous. If it's, going to, if it's going to last at all, we have got to start letting people have, what do they call that? Plethoses, plethoses, what's that word? M multiple spouses. Look at, the, look at the front of your bulletin. Alexander Pope, in his essay on man, he, he gives a beautiful quote, a wonderful quote, that describes what happens when we throw off our relationship to God. He says, Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated means but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. It's an addictive cycle, you see. Because we are given over, Paul says, given, given themselves up to sensuality. So we're chasing the experience, but, but it's making us callous. And so what do you need? You need a greater experience. It's, it's the addictive cycle that any substance abuser can tell you is exactly how it works. Our foolishness is that we don't realize that it happens in all kinds of areas of our lives, not just substance abuse. It's never enough. And that is why, getting back to the beginning, that is why Paul says it's futile. And this is why expressive individualism is just so devastating. A, a wonderful thinker by the name of Mark Sayers, I've spoken of his podcast to people before, he says that in today's culture we live under a constant pressure to define ourselves. Just as Wax said, that's the goal. Find your deepest self and express it to the world. And we live under a conscious or sorry, constant pressure to define ourselves. And that leads to huge anxiety because our, our identity is so incredibly unstable. And it's not hard to see that. You, you live in a digital age and you put up a post and you, you are living and dying by how many people like the post. How many people hearted or thumbs up or whatever it's called, your photo that you put up. How long is it? Why did that streak suddenly end in my Snapchat story thing? We don't think of that as a form of greed. But it is a greedy, it is ins an insatiable need. How fascinating, eh? It's all about looking deeper inside yourself and then expressing it to the world. But really, you... You express yourself to the world and then you need the world desperately to validate you with the likes and the streaks and the things I was just saying. And Paul says, listen, in Christ, your deepest self is known. You've been defined despite what the world says despite what your own conscience wants to say sometimes, you are a child of God. And that can never change. It is the most fundamental component of who you are. It is the most basic 
component of who you are and it will never change so that when you wake up in the morning and you think I got to get it done at school today or I got to get it done at work today or I got to get it done with my friends today you can say shut up I'm no longer a slave to fear or a slave to snapchat or a slave to my peer group or a slave to my boss or a slave to my own stinking conscience I am a slave I no not a slave I am a child of God. And Paul says, so start acting like it. <laughs> start acting like it. How? First of all, not through pulling up your bootstraps. Not through saying, come on, me, smarten up, let's do it. The first thing you need to do Remember where you came from and rejoice. Reflect back on these incredible gospel truths that are contained in Ephesians 1 through 3 and say, my goodness, those are true for me. They're actually true for me. And rejoice in that. Just rejoice. Just give thanks. Just be amazed. Just be blown away. Just bathe yourself in the incredible message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we did when we sang all these songs. I could barely sing half of them because I wanted to blubber like an idiot. Listen to this. I will not boast in riches. I will have no pride in gold, but I will boast in Jesus and in his name alone. My wealth is in the cross. You've got to reflect on that and think about how you didn't have that before. But he somehow in his grace, he came into your life and he said, listen, I am true. I am real. My son is the son of God. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He is now at my right hand interceding for you. He is doing all that for you. You don't deserve a lick of it, but I'm giving it to you anyway. And he somehow, he penetrated your hard heart that was so impenetrable when you wanted, like everybody else in the world, to just say, ah, nuts to that. Ah, get lost to that. Ah, leave me alone to that. And just carry on in your foolish ways he somehow opened your eyes to see it why i don't know i don't know other than to say because he loves you he loves you so much you have no clue i have no clue we have no clue i can't see anything don't be too hard on the people, by the way, that you love who don't listen to the gospel. Don't be too hard on them. They were like you. You were like them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Don't give up. Keep inviting them. Don't you dare give up. And if you're here this morning or afternoon, wherever we are now, I'll close with this. If you, any part of you, if you're like, is saying, you know what, I'm starting to see that my thinking is darkened. I'm not sure I understand all this, but there's something happening. Admit it to Jesus, okay? Just ask him, ask him right now, while I'm going to pray, ask him, Jesus, heal the darkness from my mind. I need to see right. Even if that's all you get from what I just said, and the rest of you is very William Pittish, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But that part you get, pray it. Pray it. While we go to communion, continue to pray it. Don't come to communion because communion, when you take communion, what you're saying is, I believe 
that this is true, that Jesus lived for me and died for me, and I want to live for him. I am desperately in need of his grace, and I will give up anything I have to, to to have him and him alone. You're not at that place. That's fine. Well, not ultimately fine, but that's fine for now. Pray that prayer. Lord Jesus, open my eyes. Help me to see. You know, nobody, nobody who has ever asked that question honestly has heard no for an answer. And neither will you. Let's pray. Father, where we've come from is hard to comprehend. But we are grateful that you have brought us from darkness to light. We rejoice in that. When we look at our lives and we think, I still, I am nowhere on this road to life. Help us to see, Lord, how far we've come, what we've lost, thankfully, and what we still need to be wary of. And if anybody is here this afternoon and they think maybe they're still in darkness, Father, shine your light on them. May they come and talk to me after the service. We have a prayer team that is willing to pray with them right by the musical instruments after the service. Mark is happy to talk to them. Father, give them the guts, I guess, or the nerve or or whatever is required to take that step. In Jesus we pray. Amen.